We have been in this series through the book of Romans. Today we are going to finish chapter 11. This kind of concludes the theological section of the book. We're going to take a break for six weeks as we kind of do a series around Easter. And then we'll come back to Romans. And uh, somebody asked me last week, will we ever get through? Yes. I don't know if we'll get through before Jesus comes back or not, but we will get through with the book of Romans if he does, if he tarries. So we will get through with it. Uh, but there's just a lot of good stuff in here. And we're actually pushing through pretty fast. We could, we could probably make this twice as long, but it would take us two years to get through. So anyway, today I want to talk to you about a sermon titled this, He Loves Me, He Loves Me Not. Now, this is probably a little old school because now you guys, you know, kids do everything on, on computers and iPhones and all that kind of stuff. But back when I was a kid and we thought a little girl had an interest in us or girls thought a little boy had an interest in them, uh, we would pick daisies and we would pull off the petals one at a time and we would say, she loves me, she loves me not, she loves me, she loves me not, she loves me. The daisy explained to me that she is deeply in love with me. Uh, I don't know how accurate that was. But anyway, it was something that we did. I, I thought about that because I, I kind of asked this question. Have you ever questioned God's love for you? Have you ever felt like maybe God had forsaken you or maybe he just wasn't listening anymore? Have you ever thought that perhaps... He's no longer interested in someone like you. I have two words for you. The Jews. Here's why I say that. The last couple of chapters here in 9 and 10, we've been looking at how uh, Paul has turned and talked to the Jewish believers. He's been sharing with them how the Gentiles are now a part of the body. The Gentiles, those who are not Jews, those who are outside of the nation of Israel, how they have become a part of this new thing, this new Christianity, this faith in Jesus Christ. The Jews had rejected the gospel. And by the gospel, the good news, what I mean is simply the understanding that we are sinners, that we can't do anything to take our own sin away, and that Jesus died on the cross as a payment for our sins. And he uh, died and was in the grave three days and then rose again. That's what we'll celebrate next week. And that you put your faith and trust in that historical fact alone to save you, to pay for your sins, to give you a right standing with God, and to be his forever, to be a part of his family. That's what I mean by the gospel. So the Jews were beginning to ask questions. Wow, has, has God left us? Have, have all of his promises and covenants of the Old Testament, have they somehow been erased? Is God not keeping his word? And if so, can we trust God to keep his word to us if he hasn't kept his word to Israel? Are we forced to lay awake at night and wonder, God loves me, God loves me not, God loves me. God loves me not. Let's look at this passage to see if our maybe presumptions and ideas about this are even correct. Because Paul's going to talk uh, to both the Jews and the Gentiles in this passage and help them understand kind of what's happening. Because the Jews are basically saying, you basically are telling us that everything's changed and that nothing that God has promised or told us before is, is true anymore. Paul's going to help him understand this. So we're going to look at Romans chapter 11, verses 11 through 36. I'm going to read it all the way through, and then we'll come back and take it apart piece by piece. Here's what it says. So I ask, 
Did they stumble, meaning the nation of Israel, which we were just talking about in the previous verses, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That, that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now before we take a look at this in depth, I want to remind you that the, the people of this time uh, saw these verses a little bit different. We have a tendency to view everything around us in kind of an individualistic way. 
And God does deal with us to some degree in a very individualistic way, especially uh, in the New Testament by letting us put our faith and trust in Christ. But in the Old Testament, God dealt with groups of people in a much more significant way. He dealt with nations of people. He dealt with groups. And so the Jews were in this mindset of us and them, the Jews and the Gentiles. So if we view these verses in a very individualistic way that God is speaking to us one-on-one about individuals, we come up with some really goofy theology that really is not correct because it contradicts many other places in the Scripture. But if we have this understanding and this mindset that God is speaking about not individuals but groups of people in general ways, it it teaches us really some great things that are in uh, perfect unison with the rest of the Scripture. So keep that in mind as we look. I want us to see that the first thing is that God's plan is unfolding. God's plan is unfolding. Let's go back to verses 11 and 12 and see what it says. So Paul says here, I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, the the Jews, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? God's just got through explaining to us, and Paul's just got through talking to us, about how the Jews had a whole, as a whole, had rejected Jesus. As a large group of people, the vast majority of them had rejected Jesus as the Savior of the world. But there was still a remnant. If you remember last week, Pastor Derek talked to us about that and did such a great job of talking about this, this remnant of people that still existed. So has God's plan for the Jews been deleted? It's basically what Paul's asking in that first question. He says, no. Far be that from the truth, he still has them in his mind and in his plan. So now God's plan is unfolding. His big giant plan is unfolding. So his big giant plan is, when the Jews rejected the gospel, salvation would come to the Gentiles. Israel would see them being uh, rich, not in monetary gain, but in spiritual blessings, in community, in, in all these blessed ways. And the Jews would become jealous. And then they would turn back to Christ. And basically at the end he's saying, if the Gentiles in the world are blessed by Israel rejecting Christ, how much more will the world and and everybody be blessed if the nation of Israel comes to Christ? That just makes sense. That just makes sense. And so he's sharing with us here how God's plan is really unfolding. Listen, folks, we were not a plan B. Think about this just for a minute. If if the nation of Israel had all embraced Jesus as a Savior, they were looking for one. They were looking for the Messiah, and they still are. If they had recognized Jesus as the Messiah, and all of them had embraced Jesus as the Messiah, the nation of Israel would be the Christians, and the majority of the rest of the world would not. We just wouldn't have. And so God allowed them to reject his son Jesus so that he could include all of us. Because when they rejected him, Paul now goes, and he's going to talk about it here in just a minute, uh, Paul goes to the Gentiles, and the, mass, the masses of Gentiles come to Christ. So 
So this is how God's plan is unfolding. And a key part that I think is important for us to talk about and understand is that uh, making the Jews jealous through the salvation of the Gentiles was a key part. This is a really key part. And it sounds kind of bad when we (laughs) use those words and say that. But let me explain it. Look in verses 13 through 16. He's going to expound a little more on this purpose. He says, now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as, as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Remember, the rest of the apostles were basically ministering to the Jew, Jewish Christians. Paul became the apostle to the Gentiles. He said, I magnify my ministry. He said, hey, I'm trying to make a big deal of this. I'm trying to do that. I'm, I'm trying to make it a big deal with you guys in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and that saves some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? But life from the dead. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Folks, if the source of anything is holy, so will all of its outcomes be. Paul's saying, listen, I know that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. This is my ministry. But he's saying, I'm trying to magnify it. I'm trying to, I'm trying to make it seen. I want to let everybody know about it, how the Gentiles are, are uh, living for Christ, how they are being, being changed by God, how they are experiencing eternal life, how they are experiencing great community. I want the Jews to see that so that they'll be jealous. Now, for those of you who are parents, especially of multiple children, have you ever seen a child that gets through playing with a toy and they lay it down and walk away, what happens when that other child picks up that toy? First one wants it back, don't they? That's the picture he's painting here. He's saying, listen, Jesus came to the Jews, but they rejected him. But the Gentiles have picked up the toy, and they love it. They love it. And so he's saying, I want the Jews to see that, so they will say, wow, we missed it. Jesus is the Messiah. Christianity is the way. We should give our lives to this. Now, I got a little personal experience in this yesterday. My wife let me know that Menards was having a sale on Pop-Tarts, which is one of my weaknesses. And they were really cheap, $1.49 a box. So if you, want to, if you like Pop-Tarts, go. Uh, so I stopped by there on my way home, and I walked in. And as I was walking down the aisle, a guy came towards me with about half a cart full of Pop-Tarts. And, and two things I thought immediately was, wow, somebody likes them more than I do. <laughs> and two, I hope there's some left. But in that moment, I was jealous of his Pop-Tarts. I was jealous of all the Pop-Tarts he had. Now, we have a tendency to give that a negative connotation, but let me help you understand a little bit. Jealousy is not necessarily a bad thing. Jealousy is a bad thing when we want something that we can't have or we are not entitled to. But it is a good thing if we want something that is freely available to us and we are completely entitled to. I wasn't jealous of his Pop-Tarts. I was jealous of Pop-Tarts in general and hoping there were some more on the shelf. I wasn't, wanting, I wasn't envying his in order to take his away from him. I wasn't going to arm wrestle him for those. But I was hoping there were some on the shelf that were freely available to me. And when I got back there, there were. Amen. All right. 
Okay? So, so this is not a bad thing. Paul's saying, listen, if, if the Jews will just see how good this is, they will want it so bad. Let me ask you a question. Do the friends that you're going to invite to church this week, do they see your Christian life and they are so jealous of it, they just want it? In other words, have they seen in you a change in your thinking, your, the way you speak, the way you act, the way you interact with other people? Do they hear about how wonderful it is to interact with the community of believers? Or do they hear from you and see from you such wonderful outpourings of Christianity that they go, man, I've been waiting for them to invite me to church. I'm glad Easter finally came because whatever they got, it's cool and I want it. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, I, I want the Jews to see this so that they are drawn to Christ because of it. That's Paul's purpose. He's saying, the purpose of me hoping they get jealous is simply because I want them to come to Christ. And if them rejecting Christ turns into wonderful blessings for the Gentiles and wonderful blessings for the world, how much better would it be if they all accept Jesus? Wow, that's really cool. Very logical, right? But then he warns us. He says, but listen, Christians, don't be proud in our salvation. Look at Romans 11, verses 17 through 24. It says, but if some of the branches were broken off, those are the Jewish branches, and you, although a wild olive shoot, that's us, we're wild olive shoots, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, God's family. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root. It's not us who supports Jesus, but it's the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you are cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now, just as a side note, I want to let you know that I did a little bit of horticulture uh, uh, study this week. And an interesting thing about olive trees is if, if an olive tree has completely stopped uh, producing olives, if you actually take a, a wild olive tree and cut a branch off and graft it into that tree, it will begin to produce fruit again. Very, very interesting. One of the few trees that will do that. All of the rest of the branches will produce fruit when you graft in uh, one uh, branch that is healthy and produces fruit. But Paul was dealing with this kind of cultural battle that was going on uh, both in the world and in the church uh, between the Jews and the, and the Gentiles. He was telling the, Jew, uh, the Gentiles, 
He was saying, hey, listen, guys, don't say, don't say, ha, 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 we are loved by God. We don't have to do all that law stuff. Ha, ha, ha. Don't, don't get prideful about this. Okay? In fact, in verse 20, the Jewish branches had been broken off because of their unbelief. Now, again, these are not individuals. This is, these are, this, he's talking about groups. The majority of Jews had rejected Jesus as the Savior. So God's saying, so I cut them off. I let them have hard hearts. I let them go their own way and do their own thing. But it, it wasn't because God was making room for us. It wasn't like, okay, I got to make some room for these Gentiles I want to save, so I got to cut some of the Jews off. No, wasn't saying that at all. So I'm cutting them off because of their unbelief, but I want to graft you in. By the way, there can be some misunderstanding at this point that there are possibly two tracks of salvation. Some people believe this. They believed it then. They believe that now. That the nation of Israel could continue to try and obey the law. They can continue to try and live by the, uh, the, the, the festivals, the celebrations, do the law as best they can, and that's some kind of salvation. And that those who are believers and put their faith and trust in Jesus, uh, that that's another track of salvation. That is a complete fallacy. Remember that everything in the Old Testament was leading up to, was pointing towards, was trying to get the world ready for the Savior, for the Messiah, Jesus. If the Jews had been focused properly, if they had not become uh, uh, so spiritually uh, uh, conceited, when Jesus hit the scene, they would all, all go, thank you, God. I've been trying to live by the law. I've been trying to be perfect, and I just haven't been able to do it. Thank you for a Savior who now can pay for my sins. They would have all done that. But because they were so conceited and thought that they had arrived, they missed him. So some people, view, some people think that at that point, they can continue to do that and, and receive salvation. And then those who can put their faith and trust in Jesus can do another tract and receive salvation. Folks, there's only one tract to salvation. The Bible is very clear that faith in Jesus is the only way to salvation. Now, I am telling you that that message is becoming less and less uh, spoken in our world. Even in supposed Bible-believing churches. I got on kind of a, uh, I don't know what they call it, but a, a, a eternal loop of YouTube videos this week as I was watching pastor after pastor say things about the resurrection, about Easter. I'm just really shocked at how many YouTube videos there are where pastors of supposed evangelical, Bible-believing, gospel-loving, Jesus-loving churches, when they're asked specific questions, is faith in Jesus the only way to salvation? Many of them will say, well, you know, I, it's not for me to say. I, you know, God's the judge, I'm not a judge, I, you know, I'm just kind of, I'm trying to help people find their way, and they become very like, I don't know, jello, is the only thing I can think of. Folks, there is one way of salva salvation, that is putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior, that is it, and it's not because I'm being a judge, I am, I am one step above paper boy, I am a messenger boy, okay, I didn't declare that. I, the elders of our church didn't get, to get together and say, hey guys, uh, let's come up with a way that we can tell everybody this is our one way to go to heaven. We didn't come up with that. 
We just look at God's word and said, listen, God says this. It's true. I'm just now a messenger boy. That's it. Let's not be afraid to say those things. We want to say them in love. We want to say them uh, with people's feelings in mind. We want them, like Paul, to embrace the gospel, not run away from it. But let's not be afraid to say that. And there are not two tracks of salvation. Jews who do not put their faith and trust in Jesus are lost. Just like Gentiles who do not put their faith and trust in Jesus are lost. Faith in Christ is the only way to salvation. He's saying, folks, stand fast through faith. Stand fast through faith. Don't become prideful. So don't become prideful because God will cut off our branch too. Now he's not saying, again, as individuals, if we looked at this as an individualistic uh, passage, we would say, oh my goodness, if I don't keep my faith strong, God's going to cut me off and I'm going to lose my salvation and, and I'll be forever lost again. It's not what he's saying. The Bible is very clear. Once you are born into the family of God, once I was born into the family of Porter, as much as they pray, uh, uh, want, uh, whatever, to get me out of their family, I'm stuck in their family forever, and my birth certificate says so. And folks, once we're born into God's family, it's done. Nobody can change that, not even us. But what it's saying is, listen, if we become prideful, and we begin to have an attitude as a group of people like, you know, God, you're pretty lucky to have us with you. We're not like those Jews who rejected you. We accepted you. So you're kind of lucky to have us on your team. We begin to think that what's going to happen? Our kids are not going to follow Jesus. Our grandkids are not going to follow Jesus. Our great-grandkids are not going to follow Jesus because they're going to see something in us that's ugly. So he's not saying he's going to cut us off as individuals. He's saying, listen, as a group, Gentiles, if you become uh, 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 conceited, spiritually conceited like the Jews are, I'll cut you off just like I cut them off as a group overall. That's what he's talking about. But he's also saying there's great hope for the Jews because he's saying, listen, with their current unbelief, they are cut off. But all they have to do is become believers, and I'll graft them right back in. If the majority of those who are Jewish will turn and, and make Jesus their Lord and Savior, he's saying, I'll graft them back. He's, in fact, he says, in fact, you guys were the wild olive root. You were the harder ones to graft in than they would be. How much easier would it be for them who were already connected to be regrafted back in? And so, folks, there's hope for everybody. There's hope for everybody if they'll turn from their unbelief. So Paul tells us, don't be proud in our salvation. Now, here's the crux of the matter right here in verses 25 through 32. And he gives us great assurance because he says, listen, folks, God hasn't broken anything. God hasn't forgot the Jewish people. God keeps his promises and he is trustworthy. This should give us great comfort. Look in verses 25 through 32. He says, lest you be wise in your own sight, <clears throat> I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, 
The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. He's saying here that the partial hardening of the Jews is taking place until the fullness of the Gentiles. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means as part of God's plan, again, he, he sent Jesus to the Jews. They rejected him. He said, okay, I'm going to send him to the, the masses, the, the Gentiles, who are the, the majority of the people on the planet. They embraced Jesus to some degree. And at some point, when all of the Gentiles who are going to be saved are saved, then you're going to see the Jews turn and say, there it is. Jesus was the Messiah. And, and it, when it says all, it doesn't mean every single person, but it says it's meaning as, as a whole, the nation of Israel will turn back to Jesus as the Savior after all the Gentiles are saved. Now, that's as clear as mud to me. And, and, and the Bible does not give us any more specifics about that. So most of the time when I stand up here, I am, I am, I am standing here with the authority of God's word, speaking what God's word says. I'm going to slip into my opinion for a moment. And so, you know, God's word is here. My opinion is some here, you know, somewhere down here, okay? Maybe this is true, maybe this isn't. But I, I was thinking, historically, how would that ever happen? What could possibly take place? I thought to myself, okay, what about the rapture? So if all the Gentiles who are going to be saved get saved, the rapture takes place and all the Christians vanish off the planet, the Bible says that basically 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to turn to Jesus, give their life to him. That makes perfect sense. The Bible doesn't say that's how it's going to happen. It's going to happen, and that's a way that it could possibly take place. And that would make sense to me. Okay, enough of my opinion. Let's go back to something true. All right. So then he says, when it comes to the gospel, this is really important, folks, to hear this. When it comes to the gospel, they are enemies because they have rejected the gospel. But when it comes to God's plan, they are beloved as part of God's plan because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He's saying, listen, every promise I ever made to Israel is going to come true. Every covenant I had with the nation of Israel is going to come true. Now, it's not maybe being true at all uh, it, now in the process because they've all rejected the Savior. They've all rejected the Messiah. But every word, every promise, every covenant that I have made with Israel is going to be true because the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What that statement means, folks, is if God says it, it is done. Period. It's not a 99.99% chance. It's 100.000 chance that it's going to be done. Folks, God is 
faithful. God is trustworthy. We can put our faith and trust in him because he keeps his promises. And when we look at the scriptures in the New Testament that talk about salvation, most of them are, are very emphatic. They don't say, hey, if you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that, that God has raised him from the dead, you have a pretty good chance of being saved. You don't find any scriptures like that. All of them, every single one of them says, listen, if you believe in your heart and you have faith and that faith turns into action in your life because it's real, you're going to be saved. Boom. Done. There's no chance of it not happening. There's no chance that at youth camp you didn't say the words quite right. You didn't you know, do the hocus pocus magic words at youth camp in the, you know, when they come forward and you pray the prayer. There's no chance that any of that stuff isn't true. There's no chance that God is going to leave you because you've committed some big sin. Folks, God is trustworthy. And the things that he has promised us are true. So Paul ends this theological part of, of his letter to the Romans. And then he finishes with this. God is God and he deserves glory. Now, when you look at God's whole plan here, it's, it's pretty complex. I mean, who would ever come up with the idea, okay, I'm going to send the Savior to the Jews, but I know they're going to reject him, and so then I'll send a guy named Paul who's persecuting the church. I'll send him back to the Gentiles to lead them all to Jesus, and then when all of them know God and, and the Jews see how good that is, and, and the rapture takes place maybe, and, and they all go, oh, we missed it. That, he, Jesus was the Messiah. Then they're all going to turn to me. I mean, who would come up with that idea? Now, most of us, especially as Americans, we, we begin to think, yeah, I probably would have made it a little more simple than that. I probably would have come up with something a little better, honestly, God. Because frankly, God, that's pretty complex and you're really dependent on a lot of people doing the right thing and doing what you want them to do there. And I just don't know if that's going to really be a good plan. So we have a tendency to think that we would maybe do it a different way, maybe a better way. But look what Paul says here. He wants us to understand, folks, that God is God and we are not. Look at verses 33 through 36. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What's he saying there? Well, first he starts with two statements. He says, listen, the depths of God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge are unfathomable. And then he asks us several rhetorical questions. Because if we even begin to think that somehow God's lucky to have us on his team, he wants to ask us these questions that are rhetorical because if any of us answer them, uh, we're going to look like incredible idiots. Who knows the mind of God? Anybody? Do I see a hand? Nope. Who, who does God look to for advice? Has he called any of you this week and asked you for, his, for advice on how to handle things or how to do things? Nope. Who has given God something so wonderful that now he is indebted to you? Anybody? Anybody at all? Of course not. 
You see, Paul wants us to understand that, folks, this is how God has chosen to run the, the world. And his plan is perfect. We may not understand it. We may not uh, think that it's the way we would have done it. But he is God and we are not. And then Paul ends with this. From him, through him, and to him are all things. Basically, anything that's done with any eternal value at all that will bring God glory comes from him. It's all done through him. And it all is given to him. So, in answer to our question, do you have to wonder at night as you lay in your bed, does he love me? Does he love me not? Does he love me? Does he love me not? Folks, we should be reassured that God is faithful to his promises, that he loves us deeply, and that he has, has, has done this whole plan in order to allow us the privilege of coming to know him through his son Jesus. Sleep well if you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus, knowing, not supposing, not hoping, but knowing that you are a child of his and that you belong to him and that will not change. If you're here and you have not yet put your faith and trust in Jesus, if you have not declared to him that you know you're a sinner and that you know you can't do anything to stop sinning, and so you accept the gift that he has given of his son, Jesus, on the cross, who paid his, his body and his blood to take away our sins. Folks, you can put your faith and trust in him today. And all of that can change. All of that can change. If we can help you with that, we want to. There's a card there in the back of your seat in front of you with some boxes on the back to check. If you give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to know that. If you need some help, we'd be glad to talk with you about that, pray with you, encourage you, help you, guide you, do whatever we can to help you in your journey to follow Jesus. Folks, we have a lot of friends and neighbors who need to experience God's love and forgiveness. Let's invite them this week to come next week and hear the good news, the gospel, that Easter changes everything. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that guides us, teaches us so clearly. We thank you for Jesus and what he's done for us. Father, we thank you that you are God and we are not, and we uh, simply need to follow your plan. We simply need to uh, do what you ask of us. Father, thank you for sending somebody to share the gospel with me. Thank you for, uh, for uh, influencing my heart to understand that I'm a sinner. God, for those of us who know you in this room, thank you for doing that for us. And now, God, we pray that you would go before us to our friends and neighbors who we're going to invite this week. Send your Holy Spirit to convict them of their sin. Uh, put circumstances in their life that would cause them to be asking questions about who you are and how you could help them. Give us the opportunity to invite them, maybe even to share our faith with them before we come next week, and then see you do great things in the lives of people that we know because you have changed our lives. Father, we thank you for that. Thank you for the reassurance that your word offers us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.